Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, I think is a very important message uh, for the day and time in which we live. Uh, I say that because this passage is so often taken out of context and used improperly. And it's important for us to understand it correctly. What we have here in Matthew 7 is probably the most familiar passage in the Bible in our culture today. At one time, it was John 3.16. I think it's Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. The favorite Bible verse of our modern day is, Judge not that you be not judged. As I've already said, this verse is misquoted, and even more, it's misapplied. It goes something like this. The Bible says, for you not to judge me. You ever had somebody do that to you? I know what the Bible says. The Bible says, don't judge. Now, if all existed in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 was, judge not, and there was nothing else after that, then you would have a good argument. The average interpretation of this text is that one must always think the best of others. It's a dangerous thing to pass judgment on anything that pertains to someone else. In other words, all judgment of others is totally off limits. It's forbidden. That's a serious error, and we'll see that as we walk through these verses here. It's not only a serious error, but it leads to false doctrine. It can lead to heresy. And the heresy and the false doctrine that might destroy the testimony of the Christian church. In fact, it is the failure of the Christian church to exercise authority based on biblical discriminating judgment that has led to the great difficulties that exist in our church. Not our church, the church. It is of the utmost importance that uh, we, the church, recognize that the Bible teaches, and we're going to see that most strongly, that when the people of God begin to turn from the Bible, from the Holy Scriptures, it is the responsibility of leaders within the church to exercise their God-given authority. And with that uh, said, I'm not saying that we should seek to cultivate the gift of criticism, because I think we already have that gift nailed down pretty well, most of us. And that's the problem that's being dealt with here. Most of us already do a good job of that. Our human nature is that of being judgmental people. It just seems to come natural for us to be that. The difference in Matthew chapter 7, don't miss this, the difference in Matthew chapter 7 is that Jesus is dealing with, anybody want to guess? Hypocrites. Don't miss that. Right up front, I'm going to say that Jesus wants us to do just the opposite of what our culture says. He wants us to judge, but to do so with humble, gracious, gentle, loving hearts. That's what we're going to see when we walk through this passage. So if you're looking at your main idea there, true judgment requires the proper attitude and discernment. I try to choose these words carefully. True judgment you could put biblical judgment if you wanted to, requires the proper attitude and discernment. Verses 1 and 2 tells us to avoid spiteful criticism. Or to avoid that. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Avoid spiteful criticism. He says verses 1 and 2, <clears throat> Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You'll have to excuse me if I drink a lot of water this morning. Uh, Judge not that you be not judged. Let's first discuss what Jesus is not saying here. That's where we need to start. He's not saying that we may never form an opinion about someone or something else. 
He's not saying, I don't want you to ever evaluate anything or anyone. I... I don't want you to care about what other people do wrong. He's not saying turn a blind eye to every fault and every error that you see. And just as it's just come to my mind, if you'll just quickly look over to verse 15, that's why we need to read things in context and look carefully at the Word of God. If you have the idea that we can't judge, what does he say in verse 15? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them, what? By their fruit. So there's judging going on there, right? So Jesus is not prohibiting judgment. He's prohibiting the wrong kind of judgment. Jesus is speaking against the wrong attitude when judging. He's speaking against being a Pharisee. We know what the Pharisees are, right? Pharisees were the religious, proud, the self-righteous. They, they did everything right, right? And they just kept adding to the law. Do this, do this. We've got this right. And they were those kind of people who look down their self-righteous nose at people. They're those type of people, if it were to rain, they would have drowned, right? Because they were walking around like this all the time. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. They were so convinced of their own superiority that <clears throat> one of the natural results was that they were oppressive and judgmental toward everybody else. They were unmerciful and unforgiving, unkind, no grace. And their constant critical condemnation of everybody who didn't measure up, listen, to their standard. There's a difference, right? Their standard versus God's standard. What Jesus has in mind here, excuse me, is what I would call the speck hunter. Look at verse 3. That's what he's talking about, the speck hunter, the people who go around looking for specks, the Christian who seeks just to naturally discover things in other Christians of which they may be critical. That's what he's talking about. Excuse me again. So, judge not that you be not judged is directed to those who have a habit of harsh, relentless, spiteful criticism that seeks to find flaws in believers as well as unbelievers. Nobody's off limits. They're critical of everybody. Judge not that you be not judged. Notice what it says there. Judge not that you may not be judged. Why Why should we not have the habit of spiteful, critical, condemning, condemning criticism? Why should we not have that attitude? Again, I want to make sure we understand. Jesus is saying judgment can take place because we read verse 15. Among many other things we're going to see here, judging can take place. It's just the wrong kind of judgment. And notice what Jesus says. Here's why you don't want to have that spiteful criticism. He's giving a warning in verse 2. Judge not... For or because with the judgment you pronounce, what will happen? You'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, some people, if you read enough commentaries and listen to uh, different people, some people think this is talking about human relationships here in verse 2. In other words... You get just what you give. You judge somebody, they judge you in the same way. That's what's going to happen to you. You measure out something to them, they measure it out the same way to you. Here's what I want you to understand. Verse 2 is not dealing with human judgment in response to spiteful criticism. Instead, verse 2 is talking about God's judgment. What Jesus is saying is with the judgment you judge, what kind of judgment? 
condescending, critical, spiteful. That's the kind of judgment that's going to come to you. It's not going to come from human beings. God will judge you. And what measure you measure, God will measure judgment out to you. Jesus says, for all who love to be critical, remember, there will be a day when God Himself will be critical of the world. There's coming a day when God is going to judge everyone. Right? That day is coming, and it's coming a lot faster than we realize. There's coming a day when God is going to judge every single one. Now listen, if you're saved today, you're not going to be judged based on whether you're saved or not. That's secure. That's, that's in place. Nothing can take that away. But there will be a judgment day for you as a believer. What's going to be judged? Your works here on this earth. That's how important what you do in this life as a believer. That's how important that is. You will be judged based on how well you obeyed Jesus. He's saying that God will judge you one day. He's reminding us that our evaluation of others, we we must remember that there's coming a judgment day in which God will evaluate us and how we judge other people. You'll give an account for that one day. Not for your salvation, but for how you lived your life here. The lesson is that if we judge in a hypercritical manner, if we have the habit of spiteful criticism, then we're going to be held accountable for that one day. God will judge us for that. We will give an account to God in our judgment of others. We expose ourselves to the judgment of God one day. Again, you understand what I'm saying. Not judgment for salvation, right? This is yes. Not judgment for salvation, but judgment for your works. Jesus is saying, if you judge in that manner, there's coming a day when... God will judge you for that. Not for your salvation, but there's going to be a judgment for you. There'll be a loss, a reward for your spiteful criticism, for being a Pharisee. And I want to stop here and make sure everyone understands. Jesus is saying that we can evaluate, we can judge, but He's saying there's a right and a wrong way to do that, right? Don't do it this way because that's not biblical judgment. That's not God's way of judging. And by the way, you're not God anyway. But let's go on through the rest of the passage here. He says, number one, to avoid spiteful criticism. But notice in verses 3 and 5, here's where we we fail to keep progressing through this passage. And and I think you understand this. When you read a verse in the Bible, you have to read it how? In context. What comes before it, what comes after it, and then you read it along with everything in that book of the Bible, and then within that book of the Bible, everything in the Bible. You can't read one verse and make a base a doctrine on that. You've got to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So we've got to keep going here. He says, exercise self-criticism. Avoid uh, spiteful criticism, but then you have to exercise self-criticism. Notice what he says in verse 3. <coughs> Excuse me. Why do you see the speck? Listen carefully as I read these. Visualize, okay? Remember I told you last week that my preaching professor said when you're preaching through a, a gospel, a narrative passage, when you're reading these things to try to picture what's going on, to try kind of visualize what's going on. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Now you've got to understand something. In the context in which Jesus is speaking this and people are listening to Him, I'm pretty sure when Jesus said this, it caused some people to laugh. They might have chuckled or giggled. Because in verse 3, listen, there's a person who looks out and sees a little speck. 
and someone else's eye. Okay? And in verse 4, that same person who sees the speck, in modern day terms, has a 2 by 4 sticking out of his eye. That's what that word log is referring to. It's referring to a beam. Do you get the picture? One guy standing here, he's got a speck in his eye. Here's another guy over here that's got a 2 by 4 sticking out of his eye, and he can see the speck in the other brother's eye. And he's going to go try to go get it out. It's a picture of a person walking around with a two-by-four sticking out of his eye who considers himself such a moral expert that he can see a speck in your eye and he seeks to help you get that speck out. Are you visualizing that? Don't miss this. There's still a person that has a speck in their eye, right? The speck is there. That person is not free from having an issue. Don't miss that. Here's a guy with a speck in his eye. And he's miserable, right? I mean, you get anything in your eye, you get a little speck in your eye, and it'll drive you nuts, right? You ever had one in there? How many of you ever got, ever got an eyelash in your eye? Man, you run around like a two-year-old with your head down, you just, you're just like, whoa, whoa, and you, that thing is aggravating, right? It, but it's in there, right? There's a, there's a speck in there. Have you ever had child... You ever had to call for someone to help you get that out? This is yes, you have. Or you're in there in that mirror, and if you're like me, you can't see unless you have that magnifying mirror, and you're looking in there, and it's kind of like, Debbie, get it out. She's like, well, be still, I'll get it out. No, and just, you know how that works. It's just driving you nuts. You've had them, right? You got that. How many of you ever been using a skill saw and get that dust in your eye? You want to have your safety glasses on anyway, but you get that dust. You know what I'm talking about. There's a speck, and it's annoying, right? It's aggravating. Nonetheless, there's still a speck in there, right? Imagine that speck in your eye. Here comes somebody who says, I'll help you, and sticking out of his eyes a two-by-four. I mean, he can't even get near you to help you. Why? Because this two-by-four is going to hit you in the head before he can ever get to you, Right? You see that? That's why people would have laughed when they heard this. They would have said, that's ridiculous. Verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a two before in your eye? Jesus is being purposefully ridiculous and comical. He's doing that on purpose. But morally, that's not funny. Why? Because Jesus is condemning pharisaical practice of harshly condemning others while refusing to examine our own lives for sin. That's what he's saying. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about what the speck is and what the log is. You can imagine. Some have said the speck is just sort of a little sin. I don't think so. I think it's a pretty severe sin. Why would I say that? Remember the speck in your eye, how it drives you nuts? That's a pretty severe speck, right? And then they'll say, well, the log is this terrible, evil, horrible sin. I don't think so. Because a person with a terrible, evil sin in their eye is not going around and trying to straighten other people out. They're usually trying to what? Justify themselves. They're, trying, they're keeping quiet about that. They're not usually out there trying to help others. Usually the people who, who see everything wrong in somebody else's life sees absolutely nothing wrong in their own life. 
The sin that never sees anything wrong in its own life is what? What do we call people who never see anything wrong in their lives, especially Christians? Self-righteous. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The sin of self-righteousness. That's what the log is in this person's eye. Self-righteousness. As long as you're self-righteous, as long as you're spiritually proud, as long as you set yourself up as a judge, you can't help anybody out with any sin in their life. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, let me stop. Is Jesus saying, don't help people? But there's a way to go about helping people. You can't be the self-righteous, condemning, critical, bitter person when you're going to try to help another person. Jesus is not saying that we should never evaluate or correct someone else. He's not saying that. Look at verse 5. You hypocrite. That's who he's talking to. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice that Jesus is speaking to those who judge, and they're hypocritical when they judge. And by the way, it's the hypocrite here who's not supposed to be judging. Notice what it says. Hypocrite, first, what are they to do before they judge others? First, do what? Take the log out of your own eye. Listen carefully. And then you will see clearly to do what? Take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, self-examination should take place before you go try to correct another brother. That's what he's saying here. Jesus teaches here in verse 5 that we ought to practice loving, mutual, restoring of people. He says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus says that the person with the log in his eye needs to be very careful before he goes out to remove the speck from his brother's eye. Here's what I want to say. If you read this passage incorrectly, you can run into two dangers. Most of the time, we'll say, I'm not going to judge. I'm going to go in the corner and confess my sin, and I'm going to take care of me. That's what, that's what we, we do when we, we hear this. Danger number one is you'll not be willing to deal with a sinning brother or sister in Christ. You'll say, I'm not going to judge because I don't want to be judged myself. And danger number two will not discern or make a distinction between what is true and what is false. We'll just leave that alone. There are dangers because if we don't deal with sin, listen to me carefully, if we don't deal with sin, then leaven is never put out of the lump. And some of you are going, what? Some of you are going, that's in the Bible, right? Leaven, lump, Yes, it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Make yourself a note. These are dangers because if we don't deal with sin, then leaven is never put out of the lump. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Listen. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, and as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let me read that again. Cleanse out the old leaven. The idea of leaven is of what? Sin. Biblically, that's what leaven is referring to. The idea of sin and its power to corrupt what? The whole. Cleanse out 
that old leaven, that sin, that you may be what? A new lump, as you really are leavened. And here's why. For Christ, Jesus, was the Passover lamb who died, was sacrificed for your sin. That's why you should cleanse that out. What is he saying there? You make a mockery of the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ when we dismiss that. Galatians chapter 5 verse 9. Make yourself a note. Says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little what? A little sin what? Affects the whole. The danger of not dealing with sin is that the church is going to get what? It'll get corrupted. And if the church doesn't distinguish the true from the false, we're walking toward heresy. So the two dangers are that we should that we would fail to deal with a brother in sin and we'd fail to deal with someone who's teaching false doctrine or we or one who could corrupt the faith or one who would mock the faith by blaspheming the faith. And we must not allow that to happen. However, there is a delicate balance for us in this passage. There's there's much discernment that's needed. Remember, true judgment requires what? The right attitude and discernment. And Jesus helps us with that. In verse 5. First of all, He says we, we must still, even though we have to be careful, we must maintain the tension and the balance so that we still reprove and rebuke a sinning brother. Verse 5, what does He say? First, what? Take the log out of your own eye. Does he stop there? No, he he doesn't. He doesn't stop with, it's in your eye. He says, do what? Get it out of your eye. It's in there. You've got to get it out. Get rid of your self-righteousness. Get rid of your pride. Again, self-righteousness is the attitude that needs to be gotten rid of here. Here's the question I have for myself all this week, reading and studying this, and I have for you. How self-righteous are you? How condescending are you and I? How haughty are we? That's the issue. And here's what I want to say. If you're a Christian, you have something in your Christian faith that ought to destroy self-righteousness. It's the idea that you're saved by grace alone and not by your good works. My daddy always told me, anything good people see in your life, Gary, God gets the credit for that. Anything bad, that's your problem. Thank you. It's the idea that you're saved by grace alone and not by your good works. You are not a Christian because you're better or because you're a better moral person. But because of God's grace. It's because Jesus died to forgive your sin and you put your trust in Him. That's, that's where you've got to start at when you begin to deal with other people when it comes to, to, to helping them in their life get sin out of their life. Get rid of your self-righteousness. Get rid of your pride. Self-righteousness, as I said, that's the issue here. And how do you do that? How do you get that out of that? It's a matter of confession of sin. First, you have to look and see that it's there. Look back at verse 3. But do not notice the log that is in your eye. Notice. Some of you have a translation that used the word considerate. The word means to perceive in a meditative, prolonged way. I, I, I think in the day and time we live in, we've lost the idea of meditation, right? 
the internet's ruined us. Fast food lines. Is, if, it, if we don't get it now, we move on, right? We don't even know what meditation is anymore. It, the idea is there, but, but do not notice. Do not sit meditatively and prolonged and look at your own life. And so Jesus says, take a good look. Don't you see you've got a, a spiritual problem yourself? Don't you see you've, you've got an ungodly self-righteousness that makes you judgmental and critical of others? He said, you need to consider that. But does he stop there? Notice what he says. After you take a long look, go to verse 5, and what does he say? Take it out. How do you do that? By confessing that sin to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.31. need to make a note of that. 1 Corinthians 11.31. What does verse 1 say? Judge not that you what? Be not judged. 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, If we judge ourselves, we won't be judged. That's good news, right? God is not going to have to correct the sin of self-righteousness if we deal with it ourselves. And so we bring our lives fully to the judgment of God and we ask Him to cleanse and to purify and to remove that from our lives. And once we've done that, we can move on. Look at verse 5 again. Then... What is that talking about? Considering, meditating on your life, finding that and getting rid of it, then you will see clearly to do what? Are you awake? Take the speck out of your brother's eye. This tells us that we've got to get the speck out of our brother's eye, don't we? We can't let him go on with that in there. Does that make sense? We don't leave it in there. We, we take care of ourselves if we've got an issue and then we help that brother. I'm going to give you a perfect example from the Old Testament of what's going on here in Matthew chapter 7. King David. Everybody remember King David? He's the perfect example of what we're talking about here in Matthew chapter 7. If I say King David, what comes to mind first and foremost with most of you? Adultery. That's right. That's what we know. That goes to prove, right? You live your whole life doing everything right. You make one mistake. That's what everybody remembers you for, right? Most of you in here remember King David said what? Bathsheba. Yeah, adultery. You remember that, right? You remember when he does that? No one does what? No one goes to King David, right? You're going, he's the king. They would never do that. It don't matter. Follower of God's a follower of God. No one confronts him. What does David continue to do? More sin. What does he do next? He has Uriah, her, her husband, what? Killed. Does anybody confront him? No. But then God sends who to David? Nathan. He tells David a story. You remember the story about two men? One was a rich man, one was a poor man. The rich man had everything he wanted. And the poor man had one little ewe lamb. And a traveler came to visit the rich man. In those days, hospitality was a big deal. Someone showed up to your house, it didn't matter if you didn't know them. The culture was, they slept in your house and you fed them, you took care of them. You're like, hmm. I know, we wouldn't do that nowadays. And so he has this traveler come. And so, instead of using his own... He takes the one little ewe lamb from the poor man and he provides the meal for the stranger. Do you remember that story? 
What does David do? He gets mad, doesn't he? What does David say? He got very angry and his response was that the rich man should die because of such a shameful thing. And what does Nathan do? You are the man. Who was the self-righteous person in this situation? It was David, right? But you see what happened? The father went along and no one confronted David. What happened? More and more and more. We must understand that in the midst of our sin, which hinders our fellowship with God, our judgment is so clouded that it's impossible for us to see clearly. And the judgment with which we judge others is the judgment which we expose ourselves to. And here's what I want to say about Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. I think you've got to interpret Scripture with Scripture. I don't think. I know you've got to. And so we should go to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, and we should put it right beside Matthew chapter 7. Matthew, excuse me, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Brothers... You know who you're, who's being addressed? Believers, right? If anyone is caught in a transgression, what is transgression referring to? Sin. If anyone's caught, that's the key. You're not the sin police. You don't sit in the bushes with your radar shooting sin coming by. It's when someone's caught, when that sin's got them in a hole, when they got a hole of their lives. There's a difference, right? This person's caught. If anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Notice the words there, you who are, what? Spiritual. You put this along, Matthew chapter 7, this will refer to those who notice the log in their eye and they take it out. Then you who are spiritual should restore the sinning brother with gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There's a way to go alongside that brother that's caught, right? It's in his what? A spirit of gentleness, not condescending, critical judgment. Remember King David? He's still our example here. Psalm chapter 51. Most of us are familiar with Psalm chapter 51, right? It's where David confesses what? Sin. And in verse 10, here's what he's praying to God. Listen. Create in me, O God, a what? Clean heart. What's David doing? Getting the log out, right? For us in Matthew 7. Creating me, O God, a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Get the log out, God. Now listen to verse 13. You can't stop. Listen to what he says. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Oh, what did David say? After I got my own life right, I can teach others who have fallen into sin the wrong ways and how to return to you. But there's no way to teach a transgressor the right right way. And there's no way for a sinner to return to God until you have your own life and your own heart clean. So if you read Matthew 7, 1 in context and use other scripture to interpret, you realize that Jesus is not saying, don't help a sinning brother. He's saying, get your own act together first and then you'll be able to help your brother. That's what he's saying. And here's what it's going to be. It's going to be gracious, humble, merciful help. It's going to be the gentle and quiet spirit. 
You don't come to a sinning brother on top in self-righteousness. You come from underneath in humility. That's the way you come to them. Here in Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching us to correct the sinning brother or sister with a view of building them up and not tearing them down. With a view of making them stronger and and not making yourself seem more holy. Just hear that? With a view of building them up and making them more stronger. What happened to David the further he went into sin and no one confronted him? What happened to his life? It kept getting worse and worse and worse until God called someone to confront David. And by the way, did David's sin just affect him? It messed up his whole kingdom. Here in Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching the correct, how to correct a sinning brother or sister. You're building them up, not tearing them down. You're not coming at them with this position of moral superiority. Jesus gives this, these instructions as the way we're to go about judging one another and correcting one another. And here's what I would say. Aren't you glad that Jesus gave us these words so we'd know what to do? John Chrysostom. C-H-R-Y-S-O-S-T-O-M. What a name. He was one of what is referred to as one of the early church fathers. How early? John lived from 349 A.D. to 407. Listen to what he has to say. Correct your brother, not as a foe, nor as an adversary, exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicines. Yes, and even more, as a loving brother anxious to restore and to rescue. There's a big difference, right? I pray that the Lord would give us hearts. Hearts of courage and conviction, and yet gentle, humble, gracious, merciful hearts to engage in what God calls us as brothers and sisters to do. And that is mutually encouraging one another in the faith. Christian, you are called to be merciful. That doesn't mean that you don't speak the truth, but you speak the truth how? In love. You speak the truth in love with the desire for the righteousness of God to be lived out in people's lives. That's what your goal is and seeking to restore a brother. Let's pray.